Thank you, JT. So we are not here because I'm protecting a mountain man card, okay? You just need to know that. I know that's what all of you have said, but that is not the deal, okay? Just, 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 want, just need to clarify that. What I would like to have is a reliable weather app for, for, for here in Roxborough, okay? It's, when I grew up in Boone, there was a, there was a place kind of right off the edge of the mountain in Blowing Rock called Bailey's Camp. And there used to be a weatherman down in Charlotte who would say, this weather forecast is for everything up to Bailey's Camp. And then past that, it does not apply, talking about in Boone and Blowing Rock. So, all right, so if you came from Leesburg or tried to come from Leesburg and didn't get here this morning because of the blizzard, um, well, God bless you for the effort, okay? Um, Seriously, I mean, we had folks slide off the road this morning. I, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm glad everybody's okay. I'm glad everybody's okay. I think it's some kind of conspiracy, personally. That's right. That's right. Now I'm off of Facebook for a while. I'll be back. What is it about us that we just grab hold of conspiracy theories? I mean, what is it about us that causes us to seem to latch on to those? I didn't know until this week, but but I'm, I'm a real fan of Paul McCartney. I've always I've always loved Paul McCartney's music. I didn't know until this week that he died in 1966. He did. You knew this. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. It's been a stand-in since 1966. The Beatles hired a look-alike to come in and fill in for Paul McCartney. Who would have known? You know, I just wasn't in. I, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know that. About that same time, a UFO sunk a U.S. warship. Um, I, I read that this week, too. Um, and Susan's grandma went to her grave believing that the lunar landing was a fake. It, it, it just didn't happen. By the way, I would not, well, you can't now, but there's a conspiracy theorist named Bart Siebel who confronted Buzz Aldrin back in 2002 in a hotel lobby. He went up to Buzz Aldrin and accused him of being a coward and a liar for faking the moon landing. That 72-year-old astronaut, 72 years old, lowered a right hand right on his jaw and knocked him out, okay? So, but... He just didn't feel like the moon landing was the real deal. Seriously, it does not matter if it's, if it's Nero's conspiracy theory that the Christians burned down Rome or if it's the storm of QAnon. We seem to want to grab hold of a conspiracy theory. Andrew Stutterford writes for the National Review. And he said, most of our lives are a touch dull. The draw of a conspiracy theory to its followers is reinforced, he says, by the perception it gives them that they are in the know. He goes, they reckon that they have discovered what the sheeple, sheep and people, he says they recognize that they or they reckon that they've discovered what the sheeple could not, endowing them with a sense of superiority that is enjoyable as it is undeserved. A fact that hoaxsters have grabbed hold of, he says, of all stripes and turned in their financial or political gain. We want to hear someone say, sign up with me and I'll tell you what's really going on. Al Mohler wrote that conspiracy theories fill in the gaps of what we don't know. And when we can't connect the dots as to why this has happened or that has happened and why this person is here and that person is doing this, a conspiracy theory helps tie it all together. It's very emotionally satisfying, he said. 
So whether it is QAnon or whether it's, you know, not landing on the moon, I really like what Carl, Carl Truman wrote about it, and he kind of ties it all together. Here's what he says as he's countering this idea of conspiracy theories. He says, nobody is that competent and powerful to pull them off. Even giant bureaucracies are made up of lots of small incompetent units fighting petty turf wars, a fragmentation that undermines the possibility of the kind of coordinated effort it takes to pull off, say, the fabrication of the Holocaust. Here's what he says. Humanly speaking, history is a tale of incompetence and thoughtlessness, not of elaborate and sophisticated cobbles. Evil, catastrophic evil, is not exceptional and it is not brilliant. It is humdrum and banal. It does not involve thinking too much, Truman said. It involves thinking too little. Church, we don't have to connect the dots. We don't have to wonder what's going on next. We're in the book that tells us what's going on next in the book of Revelation. We don't have to see the big picture connected because we have the big picture connected. And what the Bible tells us is that sin and evil and tragedy find their root not in some smoke-filled room in the Alps, but in an individual named Satan who was the premier conspirator who snuck in to paradise and using ploys that are not new today, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, this isn't scientific. And it's not hidden. It's right here on the pages for us to see. And we know that our enemy, as much of a liar and conspirator as he is, is on a leash and he is defeated. We know that because Jesus proclaimed it from the cross, right? It is finished, right? So it's done. And we see how it unfolds in the pages of Revelation. That being said, we are surrounded, as we've sung this morning, by grave danger from a world that is opposed to Jesus and opposed to his kingdom and opposed to his people. But the danger for the church is not from an external enemy that's going to frontal assault us and take the church down. It is from the inside. It is from compromise, from syncretism. It is when the lines get blurred that we are in grave danger. And the church in Pergamum is an illustration of that. It's a picture for that of us, for us to see. So Isaiah read the text for you. And I want us to just work our way through this text for a few minutes this morning. Jesus sees, we've seen this, Jesus sees the external opposition that we face. He knows, okay, he's aware of it. And he commends the church that stands faithfully against it. Let's just refresh our memory. Go back and look in Revelation chapter 1 and just be reminded of who it is that is walking in our midst, okay? Who it is that's walking among his church today. And John tells us in 1.12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's a picture of the church. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Those are the characteristics of our king. And over and over in these seven letters, we're going to see those characteristics highlighted in each of these particular churches, in each of these particular settings. And so today... We have Jesus standing in the midst of this church in Pergamum. And what we see about him today is this sword coming out of his mouth. A two-edged sword. And so as we, as we look at this, he wants to remind us, as he's reminding the people there, I, I see where you dwell, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, he says. And I know the way you are standing up for my name and for my faith, and you're doing so even at the cost of your life. One of you have died for the faith. One of you have died for my name, he says there. And I know that you live where Satan dwells. Thirty years ago, when I first came to Roxborough, I'll never forget this, someone told me there is a dark cloud over that little town. In fact, they said there is deep-seated conniving and corruption in that little city. It ain't just Roxborough. And I don't, I, I'm just telling that's what I was told, okay? And I believe the Scripture pulls back the veil for us here in the book of Revelation and shows us what we could never see apart from that veil being removed. And so when we see with spiritual eyes, we see what Paul tells us later on, that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers, against rulers, authorities, in the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, there's a dark cloud. There's a dark cloud over Boone and Bowen Rock and Roxburgh and Durham and Raleigh because we live in this broken, dark world. And Scripture makes this clear. And I believe there is a hierarchy, okay? I believe personally that there are territorial dark forces at work. But what I do know is that the Scripture says very little about this. What it does say a bunch about is that the king and his throne is eternal. That's what we read about over and over and over. We're getting little glimpses sometimes behind the the veil of the, the spiritual world. But what we see is that our king is the king of kings and he is sovereign over all, right? So we see that. But what Scripture makes clear about this one that Jesus points out, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, it's amazing what Jesus does tell us about that. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, I will give these to you if you will fall down and worship me. How in the world could Satan make that offer to Christ? I'll give you all these kingdoms that you see. Well, John explains that to us in Jesus' words in his gospel in John 12. Now the judgment of this world is at hand. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. Satan is the ruler of this world. In John 14, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, Jesus said, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is his world. This is his domain. And what we know about this domain and about this ruler, Satan, is that he is a liar. Period. He's a liar. 
John 8, he's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, Jesus said, for he is a liar, he is the father of lies. That's, that's the realm, that's, that's where Pergamum was. That's, the, that's where they were located. It was a city of about 190,000 people, they tell us, 65 miles due north of Smyrna. It was the capital city of that particular region of the, of the Roman provinces, and it was known for its political culture, it was known for its medical studies, it was known for its arts, for its trade guilds. It had a, a library of 200,000 handwritten volumes, second largest library in the world at the time. It was an amazing place. And it was the center for worship for these different Greek gods, okay? Zeus was there. A huge, they tell us, a huge temple altar for Zeus. Zeus is the god of the sky and the thunder and the father of the gods, according to the Greeks. And, and they tell us that 800 feet above the city was this huge platform altar that one writer said looked down on the inhabitants like a great vulture hovering over its prey. That was over this city. Athena was there, the goddess Athena. She was, as I was reading this week, quote, the goddess of wisdom, courage, inspiration, civilization, law, justice, strategic warfare, mathematics, strength, strategy, the arts, crafts, and skill. This was a busy little goddess. Man, she had her plate full. There was also a temple there for Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. He was often referred to in the Greek language as Soter, as the savior. And he was thought to be the first physician. And, and the symbol of Asclepius is that snake wrapped around a standard. That I think the American Medical Association still, American Medical Association still uses that as its symbol. But that snake, and, and some commentators say that this relationship between the snake and Satan and the throne is where that comes from. Dionysus had a temple there too. He's the god of fertility, the god of wine. He's considered the patron of the arts or of the winemaking skill. He, he had a split personality, they tell us. He brought joy and divine ecstasy, and he would be brutal with a blinding rage. Sound familiar? So these gods were there, but what was really the point in Pergamum was the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar. And all the citizens in Pergamum were required, as in other cities, to offer sacrifices to the god of Caesar, to Caesar himself. Offer incense once a year. If you didn't, you couldn't be a part of the guilds for, the, for your arts, for your crafts. You couldn't go to the market. You couldn't sell. The pressure was immense on this church. And Jesus says, I know that. I know you live in a godless culture. I know you live where Satan dwells. And his intimate knowledge, remember, back in Ephesus, he said, I know your works. I know the good you're doing. He said to Smyrna, I know you're struggling in your faith and you're being persecuted. And he says here to Pergamum, I know where you live. I know the dark cloud over your city. I know it's there. And this throne that's referred to here in the Greek has a definite article, which means it's talking about a specific throne. And we just sang... That the throne of our king endures forever. But the throne of Satan is something that can be traded and given away, bargained for, it seems. Later on in Revelation 13, the beast will receive from the dragon power and his throne and great authority. Satan was in Pergamum and Satan is in Roxborough in America. He's in the world working through the ungodly earthly political powers that are in existence to exert his plan 
That's just part of a fallen world. That's, that's how he works. And Jesus says, I know you're in this environment, and I know that you are, as a church, for the most part, holding fast to my name and fast to my faith, or the faith of me, as it's translated. He says, I know that you're standing up for Jesus out there publicly. And I know that you're doing it in the face of persecution, and your faith is under pressure, but you're holding on to your faith. And so just simply put, these people were devoted to Jesus, it seems, and Jesus sees that. And it's cost at least one of them named Antipas his life. That's all we know about this man. Jesus says he was my faithful witness. Wow. How's that for a tombstone? For Jesus to say, that's my faithful witness. Oh, that he could say that about us. Wouldn't that be something? So don't lose sight of this. Here's Jesus in the midst. He says, I know. But the tone of this letter is different from the others, okay? There is a heaviness to this because the one standing in the midst has a two-edged sword, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And when we see this sword throughout the rest of the book, throughout the rest of Revelation, it is not a pretty picture. Because Pergamum was a provincial capital for Rome, they had the unusual authority of capital punishment which was represented by a sword. So here in the middle of a political center of government with the authority of the sword stands the king of kings with a sword coming out of his mouth. And we understand from what we saw earlier and what we'll see later in the book that this sword is the word. It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. It is the word that the writer of Hebrews tells us is a living and an active tool, a living and active weapon, sharper than any double-edged sword. And for the people of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it penetrates right into the joints and the marrow, understanding the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So here's the deal. For the believer, for the follower of Christ, this is like a scalpel that cuts down into our bodies, down into our souls, and removes the sin that's there. But for the enemy of Jesus, it is a slaughtering tool. It's graphic in the rest of Revelation. Revelation 19:21. the rest of them, the army that followed the Antichrist, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh. It's an ominous warning that comes here in this letter to the church in Pergamon. Jesus will use this sword to heal or to slaughter one or the other. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, says it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. That was true for Pergamum. It's true for Westwood. It's true for his church. And it needs to begin on the inside here. And this heaviness of this letter is not something that we need to just set aside. Jesus sees the external dangers that we face, and he sees our faithfulness in the face of it, but he's still deeply, deeply concerned. I have a few things against you, he says next. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus sees an internal danger that's far greater than an external one, and it is the danger of tolerance. It's the danger of compromise. It's the danger of allowing the lines to get blurred. You know the Trojan horse, 
right? The Greeks and the Trojans were at war there at Troy. Epius was his name. He's the master carpenter that built this wooden horse. And the Greeks pretended to abandon the field. They left. They hid. And one of their representatives offered this Trojan horse there to the, to the Trojans. And it was, after all, it was an offering to Athena, the goddess of war. She's represented by a helmet on her head carrying a sword. Um, and so they offered it and said, this, this gift to you will make you impregnable. You'll never lose. Well, we know the story, right? Horse was brought in. The Greek came out of the horse during the middle. And from then on, it's been this illustration, this example, this symbol, not of an outward enemy, but of infection from the inside. Coming in from the inside and and bringing defeat. Now, Jesus gives us an Old Testament example of that in this strange account of Balak and Balaam. All right? And I would encourage you to go back and read that. Um, we can talk about it. There's just a lot of weird stuff there, okay? It's, it's, there's some deep, deep doctrinal issues going on in this passage of Scripture. But here's the, here's the Cliff Notes version of them. Balak, who was the king of Moab, which was the enemy of Israel, wanted this for hire prophet, Balaam. All right? He was a for prophet, prophet, right? So had to throw that in there. So he hired him to come and curse Israel. And this, this seer, this magician, this, this prophet, if you will, God was speaking through him and speaking to him. And he would not allow him to curse Israel. He, wouldn't, he tried. He tried several times. And his donkey finally corrected him. You remember? The donkey spoke to him. He said, why are you beating me? I've never been bad to you. I've always done what you asked me to do. And God spoke through this donkey. And later on, the scriptures show us that while he could not bring about the defeat of Israel from the outside, he could from the inside. Because it tells us here that he taught Balak, if you will send the Moabite women to entice the Israelite men to come into your temples, into your places of worship, You can't beat them from the outside, but you can cause them to be unfaithful to God, and God will judge them for their unfaithfulness. Go in and blur the lines, and God will judge them. And he did. He did. It was successful. Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited, they being these daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of poor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And Balaam, what Balaam was to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, it seems that the Nicolaitans were to the people in the New Testament. And and again, the lines are kind of blurred here. We don't really know the distinction between those who followed the teaching of Balaam and those who were of the Nicolaitans. But what we saw earlier about the Nicolaitans were they were, they were people of grace, if you will, to the, to the negative degree. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be forgiven. They were people of license. Go ahead and go. Ahead and go. To that temple. Go ahead and you can be involved in the sacrifice to Caesar. After all, you'll be forgiven for that. Right? 
Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So go ahead and do what you want to do. Well, do what you need to do to get along. Go along and get along. It'll be okay. You're forgiven. That seemed to be what the Nicolaitans were espousing. And so this compromise, this what we see in the Old Testament carried over to the New Testament. And some question whether or not the issue here was actual sexual immorality physically or sexual immorality spiritually. And I think that's a false dichotomy. You can't separate the two. Because that's the issue that was going on here. Understanding it from a biblical yeah, physical immorality, that's pretty cut and dried. We know what that is. Well, we used to. I'll get to that in a minute. But this spiritual immorality is the picture. The people of Israel hoard with the people of Moab. They were unfaithful to their spiritual husband, to God. And so it's the same there. And, and later on in Revelation, we'll see this. This word for fornicate, porneo, where we get pornography, is a picture throughout of spiritual immorality, of forsaking God and, and going with the world. We'll see that later on. And the condemnation to Pergamum, and listen to this carefully, was not that the whole church was doing this, but that the church was allowing a few within their midst to do this. They were just allowing it. So Pergamum faced huge, huge pressure from the world around it, okay? Culturally, politically, artistically, entertainment-wise, you name it. Remember, Zeus was there in Pergamum, and Zeus is here too. Zeus represented this, one, one person said, a voracious spirit, hungry for women, victory, power, and territory. The spirit of Zeus has crept its way into the American church, and we have confused power and a right understanding of it. We've let a worldly understanding of victory and territory work its way into the church, and we've been allowed, we have allowed within the church, I think, to be compromised from worldly political power at the cost of humble, world-shaking Holy Spirit power. We've gotten those mixed up. The spirit of Zeus is alive and well. Athena was there, the goddess of war, who it says delighted in war cries, onslaughts, and battles. She's alive and well in the American church. She's worked her way into the church where we're more happy about war cries than we are about cries of repentance. She's worked her way into the American church where we've gotten confused about the difference between worldly political wisdom and godly wisdom. Those lines have gotten blurred. The difference between Christ-like courage and worldly arrogance and confidence. We've gotten those lines blurred. She's infiltrated her way into the church, and so we've forgotten that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against a different political party. It's against, it's against spiritual powers. And we have forgotten that that battle is fought on our knees in worship, in prayer, and wielding the word. Athena is alive and well. Dionysus was there, the god of wine, presiding over mysteries of birth and life and death and resurrection and procreation, intoxication, magic, joy, hallucinations, madness and sexual healing. Dionysus is alive and well. He's brought confusion into the church and compromise concerning our liberty, concerning our sexuality, concerning what it is that's going to make us happy and give us hope. He's, a, he's here. And so is Asclepius. 
the God of medicine. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's worked its way into the community of faith so that we think we can save ourselves with medicine. And our lives are not ours to save. We are wise and we must be wise and we take advantage. Praise God. I had a conversation this week with one of our members. How thankful we should be that we are so close to some of the world's best doctors, best medical technology. Praise God for that. Your life will not be saved by it, though. So all of these were there. And who else was there but Caesar? His temple. His reign. His rule. His political power. His glory. And the compromise must have been subtle at first. Maybe the church at Pergamum, some of those influential people, maybe they thought, you know what, the best way to reach our worshiping, our emperor worshiping friends is to go visit their temple with them and attend their feast. And then we can invite them to come to our place of worship. Maybe if we go with them while they worship their king, we can invite them in to worship our king. And besides, we're under grace. We can compromise in this area or else we can't do business. Maybe that was going on there. Yeah, you tell me about your, religion, your allegiance to your king and I'll, I'll share with you why they even might us let us fly our flags at their rallies. Caesar was alive and well in that church. And behind it all, sitting on his throne, delighted in the confusion, delighted in the blurred lines, delighted in the love and acceptance and tolerance and compromise is Satan. Tickled to death with all of it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, in letter number seven, wrote this to his young nephew. Let him begin. This is the one they're trying to capture his soul for hell. Screwtape wrote, Let him begin by treating patriotism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of that partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, unquote, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of its excellent arguments and the favor it can produce in the political effort. Then he says, once you have made the world and end and faith is a means, then you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he's pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity. He is ours. And the more religious, the more securely he is ours. I can show you, Screwtape said, a pretty cage full down here. It started quietly. And as the lines began to lure, that compromise, that virus, worked its way into the church. And Jesus saw it. And he had the strongest, the strongest words about it. And he had the most beautiful gift of, of offering grace. Notice what he says next. Repent, therefore. It's, it's, that's the sentence. Therefore, repent. Period. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Repent, Jesus says. 
The point being, the church has a compromise to cleanse it, has the, has the calling. We have the responsibility to purify ourselves. It's up to the church to deal with this on the inside. And the majority of the members of the church at Pergamum held fast to Jesus. But they also then seemed to let love usurp their purity. And they allowed this to go on in their midst. And they allowed it to go on in their midst to the church that Jesus says, I'm going to judge you for it. So if there's sexual immorality taking place, if there's these compromises taking place, then Jesus says, repent. Church, it's your responsibility to take care of that on the inside. Paul made this real clear in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, expel the evil man from among you. Do not even eat with him, he says. Later on in that same passage, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's a good word for us. What business is it of ours to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So here's what seems to be the case that it happened in Pergamum, and I believe is so much of a danger here in our church in America. The church in Ephesus seemed to have elevated truth above love. Jesus said, return to your first love, right? But here in Pergamum... It allowed love to be elevated above truth. And their commitment to love and tolerance had somehow or other, it seems, just declined, degenerated into sentimentality, tolerance, getting along, blurred lines. And when the theological purity of that church is in danger, Jesus will have none of it. If you do not repent, he says, I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I can't think of anything more terrifying than to face the eternal God with his sword drawn. Christ threatened this church with death if they did not respond to his calls. Sin is so deadly and it's... It's so sneaky in some ways. And if we're not careful, we get sucked into it. That's what had gone on here. In fact, Paul in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 5 says it's like a little bit of yeast that works its way all the way through. So that was the invitation was repent. And the whole church, the whole witness of the church was threatened by the presence of this compromise. See, when the lines are blurred then the truth is blurred. And what we might say on one hand seems to be contradictory to what we might say in another place. And it wasn't clear anymore. And the church was enticed by the gods, by the politics, by the powers, by the philosophies. And and it was so corrupt, it seems, Jesus says, that you can no longer have a clear representation. Jesus said, you can't speak for me in the culture and this go on at the same time. You can't bear my name and go that direction as well. And Jesus says, repent. And he offers this great promise. Look at what he says there. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden, some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one who receives it. This is kind of weird, okay? I mean, this is just, this is just a little unusual. 
But we know what manna is, right? In the Exodus, following God, God's going to provide for us. It just falls out of the heavens. And Jesus is promising, if you're walking with me and being faithful to me and holding to my name and holding to the faith, I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to, I'm going to provide what you need. And this deal with a white stone, there's several explanations for it. Um, a white stone was quite often seen as you got a little white pebble and it was your ticket into a festival or into a, into a place of gathering, into the theater. It was not a paper ticket. It was a little white stone. If you had a white stone, you had access. Or other cases, they tell us, the white stone was used by juries. And if you received a white stone, you'd been acquitted. So it was a picture of acquittal. It was also a picture, they tell us, of, of being um, accepted and just received in. Okay, just Sometimes victors, they told us, would be received this little white stone as a, as a symbol of victorious, being a conquering hero. Either way, it's a picture of being brought into his kingdom. You're acquitted. You're forgiven. You've won. You're victorious. Come in. You're mine. Jesus said, I will nourish you, I will receive you. And then what's up with this name thing, okay? They have a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And I believe it's just a picture of him claiming us as its own, as, as his own. If anyone is in Christ, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, he's a new creation. Well, we get a new name, a whole new identity in Christ. And Greg Beale in his commentary, I'll just quote him because I think he, he says it well. To know someone's name, especially that of God in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and to share in that person's power or character. To be given a new name, Beale says, is an indication of a new status. Therefore, here in 2.17, this represents their final reward of being consummately identified and united with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom. So Jesus says, I will nourish you, I will receive you, I will claim you as my own. That's my reward. Repent, church. What I offer you is better than the world, better than you can imagine, better than what the politics and the power of this world offer. So let me give you three quick points of application. First is, you know, I'm not into fear factor evangelism, but this ought to scare you to death. This sword of Jesus will either heal you or destroy you forever. And he stands here, as we'll see later on in chapter 5, as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world to atone for our sin. You can receive a stone that has a new name, a new identity for you because Jesus paid that price. You can receive forgiveness for your sins because he has accomplished that and received the guilt that you and I deserve. Trust in Jesus. Turn to him and repent for the healing and the name and the fellowship that can only come from him. Turn and trust him now or later. It'll be destruction. That's the first one. Come to Jesus for life. Secondly, for the church. Church, I'm, I just this is just, we have to recognize the eternal danger of compromise in our lives personally and in the life of our church and in the life of our church as a nation. We need to recognize the danger of compromise. Smyrna was a church in the world. Pergamum is a church with the world in it. 
And that's the danger. And it starts slowly, subtly. And then we begin to compromise maybe on some of our standards. What used to be crystal clear in a standard begins to get altered a little bit. It's not as clear as it used to be, both personally and corporately. And then we recognize that all of a sudden speaking out against that seems to be offensive. If we do, we're unloving. And that bruises deeply. And so eventually it just leads us to accept what we once rejected, to accept what we once were just literally repulsed by. One writer put it this way. It is well said that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. And what that next generation accepts, the one after it celebrates. Tolerating, accepting, celebrating. Church, the dangers of compromise are huge. And I recognize, as you should too, that this is not easy. It's not easy to stand up against this. I was actually going to use this quote when we were talking about Smyrna, but I read this, listen to it. In the business world, in the academic world, in the athletic world, really in any realm of segment of our society, a person can be openly anything and be celebrated for it, except openly and faithfully a Christian. And we should recognize that opponents of Christianity are going to oppose us not by saying that we are wrong, but by saying that we are backwards, ignorant, evil and dangerous, that we are anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-Semitic, anti-intellectual, anti-tolerant, anti-diversity, you go on. And they will do this in direct proportion to how public we are with our claims of Christianity. However strongly we stand up for the name of Jesus and stand strong in the faith, the culture will be repelled by that and will revolt against that. Jesus just says, I know where you dwell. I know who's on the throne temporarily. And I know what you face. And your danger is not from an outward frontal assault, church. The danger is an infection from the inside of letting the lines get blurred and compromise. It will kill us. It will kill our witness. It will kill our effectiveness in ministry. And the church will not see, the, the, the world will not see any difference between us and what goes on around us. We have to guard against that. And thirdly, guard it as a church, and, and we need to guard the hearts of each other. This, this, Paul says in Galatians 1 that if we seek to restore a brother who is compromised, a brother who's allowed the lines to get blurred, a sister who in some way has, has seemed to, to fall, we need to do so, he says, gently, with a spirit of compassion. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is a gradual hardening. And, and when you see it in me or I see it in you, we have a God-given responsibility to come along beside each other and say, Sister, brother, I'm, I'm concerned about this. And I know that's hard too. But our life, our witness depends on it. And our Savior stands in our midst saying, 
I'm here to heal, to cleanse, repent, or be crushed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to understand the gravity and the weight. It's hard, Lord. It's hard to be in this world and not of it. It's hard to want to see our nation do well and get confused in how that wellness will come. God, it's hard for us to know how to, how to navigate individually in our, in our own hearts and in our families according to your word within the, the construct of our culture. Lord, give us wisdom there. Help us to be bold in standing up for the name of Jesus and for the faith, for the gospel. Give us compassion for one another. Lord, thank you for your word today. Save some, Lord. Convict us all. Will you not revive us again, Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.